Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you for your word. And we remember that your word accomplishes your work and that it never returns void to you. And so we ask, O Lord, give us understanding. We ask, O Lord, give us our daily bread. We come as beggars. We come undeserving of your grace, undeserving of understanding anything that your word says. But we come in the merit of Christ, asking, O Lord, that by grace you would grant us understanding that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the text for us in order that we would have comprehension and conviction. O Lord, teach us to live by your word, to walk by your word, to lean on your word, to need your word, and to see how desperately we need your word. And so we pray now as we enter into our study of your word, that you would accomplish your purposes in our lives, that you would grow us in Christ's likeness, and that our lives would be transformed, our minds would be renewed by your Spirit working within us in accordance with the Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of John. We will be in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27 today. We're going to be finishing up chapter 15. I wanted to start chapter 16 next month. Uh, Next week, of course, I'll be preaching a psalm, but we will be wrapping up uh, John chapter 15 today as we study verses 26 and 27. Um, The thing that Jesus saves for last or that John records last in this chapter These words should be so encouraging to you. Uh, They were so encouraging to me as I I thought about them, as I meditated on them, as I I thought about the Bible as a whole and how this fits into the, the, the bigger picture of the Bible as a whole. These two verses are so loaded with good theology that ties in with Scripture from beginning to end. Um, man, I, I hope it blesses you as much as it has blessed me to study these two verses. Um, think about it this way as we get started. Have you ever been recruited for a job? Uh, I remember when I was fairly young, I was, what's, let's see, 24, uh, and I became a stockbroker. And uh, after I got my licensing and everything, I was recruited to work for a different brokerage than the one that I received my initial uh, licensing through. But as I, I went and I, I interviewed with the office manager, you know, the office manager did what office managers do. They're trying to sell you on, on what they offer, what, who they are, right? So he was telling me all the benefits I'd received from working at this new office. Uh, he told me about how they have this radio show that they were doing and that I would uh, be able to get leads, uh, you know, from that. He was telling me about how, you know, they pay a higher rate of commission uh, and how they offered a 401k, you know, after so much time and after you've hit so many sales. But the biggest deal of all, as, as I remember it, uh, was the man that I would be working for, the man who, who owned this brokerage firm. Uh, the big deal was he was personal friends with this worldwide, very well-known motivational speaker. And of course, he'd won this award and he'd won that award. And so anyway, I ended up making the move to this new brokerage. And I kind of, I guess, got to know this man who owned the, uh, the brokerage firm, but only on a very surface level. Uh, I remember that he claimed to be a Christian, but he uh, cussed a lot, as I remember, and he was just very, very worldly, very temperamental. Um, so, you know, give or take, whatever. Nevertheless, it was interesting to be recruited. That was the only time in my entire life, I think, that I've been recruited to go and work for somebody else who, at least on paper, uh, sounded like he was very important. Uh, That made it hard to turn the opportunity to work for him down. I mean, think about it. The idea of working for 
important people or on important projects appeals to us on some level because we want our lives to matter uh, for something more than, than what they are, right? I mean, if the White House, think of it this way, if the White House were to call you tomorrow and invited you to work as a partner with them in some project, wouldn't it be enticing? Even if you hate the president, even if you don't agree with the president, the idea of working for the White House, that would be enticing. But let's think about that in perspective now. Because if being recruited for these secular, worldly ventures seems exciting and seems appealing to us, how much more exciting should it be that God would seek to partner with us? That He would call us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That He would replace our heart of stone with the heart of living flesh. That He would equip us for everything that we need to participate with Him in His mission in the world. Uh, Paul, Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 5 is one of Paul's favorite or uh, most famous uh, passages, the stuff that he said in that passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where he talks about being a new creation in Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. He, he comes to a conclusion toward the end of the chapter saying, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled unto God. But it doesn't stop there. Re- remember that the, the, parag- the, the, the chapters and the, the verses, those aren't inspired. Those were added a lot later. Uh, Paul actually continues that same thought in chapter 6, verse 1, where he adds this, And working together with him, with God, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Did you catch that? Working together with him. The Greek word there is synergeo. Uh, for theology nerds like me, uh, you know, we, we might recognize that that's the word that we get the word synergism from, uh, as opposed to monergism. Uh, a solid grasp of biblical theology would have us recognize that salvation is monergistic. That is, that it is accomplished by God and only by God, by His grace. Uh, Arminianism, on the other hand, views salvation as synergistic. Uh, That is, that that, that we participate in our salvation. Uh, That the individual works with God for salvation by accepting the free gift of salvation. Now, obviously, I do not believe uh, that the Bible in any way uh, affirms the idea that we are partners with God in our salvation. It's accomplished entirely by the grace of God working in us because the heart of stone has to be replaced. But in making us new creations in Christ Jesus, He makes us partners with Him in the sense that we are called to work to fulfill the mission that He has given to the church. As we study the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus has been speaking uh, words of comfort. He's continued speaking words of comfort and assurance to his, uh, to his followers. And He's been doing that for a couple chapters. And we saw in the previous verses why those words were so necessary. It's because the church was going to be hated by the world. And why would the, wor- the, the church be hated by the world? Because the world also hates Jesus, the one who redeemed and thus owns the church and is unified with the church, united with the church. Jesus is hated by the world, and because we are in union with Jesus, the world hates the church too. Nevertheless, it's clear that the disciples and and the church in the age to follow by extension had a mission that was given to her. A mission for the church to accomplish. Jesus said uh, earlier, a few verses ago, He said, I've appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So He says that, but then He immediately follows that up by telling them how hated they're going to be. And so at this point, you would think that somebody would have been listening closely enough to say, wait a minute, 
We're going to bear all this fruit and we're going to be hated. How is that going to all work together? How could we possibly bear any good fruit? How could we possibly go forth into the world that hates us and do anything if there's so much opposition to who we are and who we represent? And that brings us to the point of the passage that we come to today. The point of this passage is that God's mission on earth will be accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit and the church partnering together, testifying of the truth of Jesus before the world. So first, what we're going to see here is the promise of a helper, which we've already seen, but this is kind of a reiteration of that, the promise of a helper, an advocate, who would be our ally in the midst of our being on the receiving end of the world's hatred. And secondly, we're going to see a promise as to what his work in the world would include. So let's start just in verse 26. Jesus continues in verse 26 saying, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. This Helper, this Paraclete, this Advocate, would be our ally, clothed in celestial armor, fully God, one with the Father, one with the Son, in substance, in nature, in essence, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would ensure that God's plans and purposes in the earth would not fail, but that they would be fulfilled through the mission of the church. Think about this for a second. What a disaster it would have been if God would have given us this mission without sending an advocate, without sending a helper, without sending the Holy Spirit. All we could have done without the Holy Spirit also ministering, all we could have done is fail. Because neither you nor I can change out the heart of stone. We cannot replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, which is necessary for a person to have eternal life. The Holy Spirit ensures that our mission will be a success. Now, as we mentioned before in a previous lesson, the issue of who sent the Holy Spirit, was it the Father or was it the Son, Uh, that actually uh, caused the biggest division, the biggest church split that the world has ever seen. The question was, who sent the Holy Spirit? And the answer is that the Holy Spirit was sent by both the Father and the Son. Uh, We've seen that the Nicene Creed clearly testifies to that. Uh, It says of the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. The movement uh, which broke away from the Nicene understanding of the Trinity, of the, of the Holy Spirit and who sends Him, came to be known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. But notice in our text, notice that there are two terms by which the Holy Spirit is referred to in this text. He's referred to first as the helper or advocate, uh, and He's also referred to then as the Spirit of Truth. Now that's very significant that these two terms are used of the Holy Spirit because each one of these terms is going to indicate a different role that the Holy Spirit would fulfill on earth in His ministry. First, He's designated as a helper, advocate. Who's helper? Who is He helping? The church. The church. He's the church's helper, the church's ally, the church's advocate. His role in this sense is to render strength to our weakness, to render courage to our cowardice, and to render knowledge to our ignorance. And whatever else might be necessary for the mission that God has given to the church to be a success, He would he would fulfill that role. He would give us those things. The church would be like sheep being sent out into the midst of wolves. And it would be the sword of the Spirit that would protect us and prevent us from being devoured entirely. 
this helper would be our divine ally in the midst of this battle that would rage on through the centuries, through the millennia now that was to come. And he would stand by us holding and wielding the most dangerous weapon imaginable as far as the world is concerned. What is that weapon? Truth. He's got truth on his side. Truth is his weapon of choice. Apart from him, natural man is hopelessly lost in the darkness. Apart from his work, natural man is completely unable to discern spiritual truth, completely unable to understand or comprehend the mind of God. And this is exactly why the gospel is foolishness to them. It's because they can't understand it. This is exactly why it's foolishness to them. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, not only does, it doesn't say he does not, it doesn't say he, he, he refuses to, it says he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So let's get this straight. Let's understand what Paul's saying. An unconverted man, this, this natural man is an unconverted man, he's unregenerate, he's unbelieving, and he's unable to understand spiritual truth in his natural fallen condition. This describes every single person, you and me included, apart from the Holy Spirit's work of taking up residence within us and revealing truth to our hearts. If us reading the text from a natural man's perspective, if we cannot gain understanding, how could we ever believe and the answer is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth reveals truth to the fallen sinner. That's the answer. That's how it happens. Spiritual life must come before spiritual understanding. Just like physical life must come before physical action or, or intellectual understanding. You have to be alive to understand. As R.C. Sproul used to say, regeneration must precede faith. How does God convince us of truth? By sending the Spirit of truth to minister to us. Now, if you're the type of person who likes to circle things in your Bibles and all that kind of thing, let me draw your attention to the word from here in this verse, in verse 26. The helper who is the Spirit of truth, Jesus tells us, would proceed from the Father something that Jesus says twice in this verse, which kind of indicates that it's something important, something we, we should probably notice. But the interesting thing to note is that the Greek word that gets used and that's, that's normally translated uh, from is not the word that Jesus uses here. Usually the Greek word that gets translated as from is ek, ek. But in this case, it's para, which means from, beside, or in the vicinity of. And this is to remind us of the intimate communion that the Holy Spirit and the Father have. Jesus would ask the Father, and the Holy Spirit would proceed, would be sent to us from the Father, from being in His presence for all of eternity, from being in His vicinity for all of eternity. This is strong language indicating the Trinity. It reminds us of the union that exists between the persons of the Holy Trinity, and thus between the Father and the Holy Spirit. But the indication is that this person, that's what he is, he's a person that we call the Holy Spirit, is as much one with the Father as the Son is. He's as much fully God as the Father is and as the Son is. He's not simply the power of God as if he's an inanimate force, uh, as various cults have understood him to be. No, he is a person. He's not an it. And it does not testify. And it is just kind of neutral. It just is. If he is as much God 
as the Father is and as the Son is, what we have to understand is that He is as incapable of failing at what He does as the Father and the Son are. Is it possible for God to fail? Absolutely not. Perish the thought. It is impossible for God to fail at anything because if it were possible for God to fail, then it would be possible for God to do better, to be better. He he has room for improvement. Would we want to think such a thing about God? Of course not. That is not the God of the Bible. To suggest that God has any room for improvement can only indicate that the person who thinks such a thing or makes such a claim about God, in fact, doesn't know God at all. God has no room for improvement. So given the fact that God cannot fail, and thus given the fact that the Holy Spirit cannot fail, friends, Do you believe that He is sufficient to ensure that the truth will prevail over those whom God intends it to prevail over? Of course. Of course. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is sufficient to ensure that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Though we're called into a fierce spiritual battle, it is the Spirit of truth. It is the Helper, the Advocate, the Comforter who defeats our enemies through our efforts, which without His aid would surely fail. Think of the words of Martin Luther in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph. How? Through us. Through us. That is the only reason that anyone is converted. That is the only reason that the truth continues to go forward 2,000 years later. That is the only reason why, friends, We are more than conquerors in Christ. Why will God's truth go forth in this world despite the world's opposition, despite the world's hatred for us and for God, according to Jesus? Why will His truth go forward? It's because the Spirit of truth will do what? Testify. He will testify. Jesus says He will testify about me specifically. He will be a witness about Jesus, about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And He does this in in two ways. First, the Holy Spirit bears witness in James Montgomery Boyce's words, quote, by speaking through the Bible to carry the Bible home to the individual human mind and heart, end quote. Now, if, if you're familiar with this concept, you might know that in the Protestant Reformation, this idea was referred to as the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. That is, when you read something, the Holy Spirit brings it home to the heart. Not just the mind, but to the heart, so that a person believes. This is called the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And as the London Baptist Confession of 1689 affirms in chapter 1, paragraph 6, quote, We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. End quote. So the first way that the Spirit testifies of the truth is through the reading, through the studying of God's Word, through the reading and studying of the Bible. The second way, it's pretty obvious, it connects with with verse 27 here, it's through the ministry of the church. When the Bible is read, or when the Bible is is heard by the natural man, on his own, apart from God's grace, working in him, he has no understanding of it. He has no comprehension of it. The desire of his heart is not to find the truth. The desire of his heart is to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness, in his unrighteousness. But the Holy Spirit 
brings the truth of the Scriptures to his heart. He reveals the things of Scripture to be true and helps the individual to gain understanding of the text. This is what Jesus was referring to in the next chapter, in chapter 16, where he'll say, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Uh, this is also what John was referring to in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, where he wrote, Quote, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So when you hear the Bible taught, when you hear it read, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth of what the scriptures say. First, by giving the individual comprehension. Comprehension, something that the, the natural man has never wanted, something he's never been capable of having before, but something that by grace the Holy Spirit brings to his heart. Comprehension. Comprehension. He has spent his entire life suppressing the truth. He has spent his entire life running away from the truth. He has spent his entire life hating God, but his hatred has been an ignorant hatred. And it's been a hatred that lacked comprehension. So the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is He gives the fallen man comprehension. Comprehension of what God is. Comprehension of what God says. Comprehension specifically of what God says in His Word about His own, about the fallen man's own fallen condition. And that leads us to the second thing that the Holy Spirit gives the man. Conviction. Once he starts to comprehend, it starts to click, and he starts to feel convicted. The unregenerate man who, who has not experienced God's grace feels no conviction at all. He, he, he can't comprehend anything, so he doesn't feel conviction for it. But once he starts to comprehend, the Holy Spirit strikes the individual with conviction. Conviction of what? Conviction of his sin. Conviction over the reality that he stands before a holy God as a rightly condemned sinner who deserves nothing but God's holy and just wrath. John will record Jesus touching on this in the next chapter where Jesus is going to say, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit would bear witness to the truth of Christ, granting comprehension first, conviction second, and thirdly, conversion. Conversion. Our confession states in chapter 10, paragraph 1, those whom God hath predestinated unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His his grace. What a beautiful, beautiful paragraph. What a beautiful summary of salvation. The clause to keep in mind as it relates to what Jesus is speaking about here in John chapter 15 uh, is the clause that says, by His Word and Spirit. In whom will the Holy Spirit produce these three gracious effects? Comprehension, conviction, and conversion. Who gets those three effects? Only the church. Only the church. Notice that little phrase, to you, or, or unto you, uh, depending on your translation. Alexander McLaren says this, he says, quote, that tells us at once that the witness which our Lord has in mind here is something which is done within the circle of the Christian believers and not in the wide field of the world's history or nature. End quote. In other words, he would only produce these three effects in the elect. The Holy Spirit would bear witness to the truth 
about Jesus, producing comprehension, conviction, and conversion in the elect. The question we're left with, I guess, is what would that look like? How, do, how does he do it? How will the Holy Spirit accomplish these things? And that's where we come to the second verse of our text today. Let's look at verse 27. Jesus continues saying, And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. How will the Holy Spirit grant comprehension, conviction, and conversion through the work of His people? That is the normative way that He does it. The Holy Spirit would be one witness in the age to come, and the church would be a second witness in the age to come. And actually, if you think about it, this is very significant from a biblical perspective because how many witnesses were required by the Old Testament law in order for a person to be convicted of sin? How many people, how many witnesses were necessary? Two or three, right, two or more. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Two witnesses. There's a lot of significance to that. The, the Holy Spirit accomplishes His work through the Word, but also through the witness testimony of the disciples and through the, the church as an extension as we continue in the same teachings that the, uh, the disciples would go on to spread. Uh, Peter declared on Pentecost as he preached. He said, and we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. That's from Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Now, we can be certain that the primary application is to the disciples, since only the disciples were present with Jesus from the beginning of His ministry on earth. But the mission and the promise apply to the church throughout the centuries and millennia to come as well, since we continue to proclaim the exact same gospel and the exact same truths about Jesus that the disciples who went on to become the apostles would proclaim in their ministry as the Spirit has recorded for us in Holy Scripture. Peter writes this in 2 Peter 1.16, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Who is that we? It's the disciples. It's Peter, John, all those guys. He goes on to say in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. See the partnership? See how these two things work together, man and God? Do you see how this twofold witness is explained throughout Scripture? The Holy Spirit is one witness. The church is the second witness. We are partners. We are co-workers in God's mission on earth in the sense that we have been given a mission, the Great Commission, to testify to the truth about Jesus Christ, trusting that as we do, we don't go alone, but that the Holy Spirit will work within the hearts of our hearers and will work within the hearts of those He has called to comprehend, to be convicted, and to be converted. I mean, think about it. These disciples were not uh, supremely educated people. They were uh, tax collectors. They were fishermen. Uh, how could they create a movement, create a message that would be taken to the ends of the earth for 2,000 years and, and onward until the Lord returns. The only explanation is the witnessing ministry of the Holy Spirit who worked through the ministry of the church in the ministry of the Word as it was carried out. Just as even today, the only explanation for why you or I believed and were saved is because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as He worked through the ministry of the church. This is something that should keep us humble, friends, because if we do bear any fruit in our ministry of the Word, if our, if our preaching of the gospel results in even one person truly being converted, it's not because of us. It's not because we were so persuasive. It's not because we were so slick. It's not because we knew so much. It's because we were just faithful to say, here's the truth. 
to witness to the truth. It was the Holy Spirit working through us as He saw fit. If we have comprehension to share in hopes of enlightening the minds of others, we only have that comprehension by the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. Truly, there is absolutely nothing that we have to boast of before men other than the grace of God. Yes, the world hates us. Yes, they hated our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the result is we face fierce opposition. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And they hate us. And yet, we have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to be our ally, to comfort us, to strengthen us, to enable us, to guide us into all truth, and to teach us. And as we testify and bear witness to the truth about Jesus, He brings the message home to the hearts of His people. We can speak no further than somebody's eardrum. That's the furthest I can put a message. I can put it in your ear. That's it. I can't put it in your heart. That's what the Holy Spirit has to do. The Holy Spirit must bring it home to the heart. And that ensures that the church's mission would be a success despite the hatred, despite terrible opposition throughout this age. Now, if you have your Bible, um, turn to Revelation chapter 11. Because there's a lot of speculation about who the two witnesses are in Revelation chapter 11, uh, verses uh, 3 to 6 specifically. But my question is this, is it possible that the two witnesses there in Revelation 11 are the same witnesses named here in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27? I think it's possible. What is John assuming as he writes this? He's assuming that you've read his first gospel, his, the first thing that he wrote, his gospel, right? Now, my view of the end times isn't the popular one, uh, which views Revelation as a chronological account of what will happen in the end times. Uh, as far as I know, there are no movies or fictitious books that, uh, that communicate my view of the end times. Uh, but I view Revelation as an overview of the conditions that will exist throughout the end times, which started on Pentecost and will continue until the Lord's return. So John writes this in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 to 5. He says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Now we know that Revelation is filled with symbolic imagery. And sometimes it's easy to figure out what that symbolic imagery represents, and sometimes it's not, but it's pretty easy to figure out what the fire here represents. The fire represents the judgment that those who hate the church and reject her message of salvation will have to endure for eternity. G.K. Beale notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, The two witnesses mentioned here who prophesy are not individuals, but rather represent the corporate church in its capacity as faithful prophetic witnesses to Christ. And he goes on to list several uh, very convincing, very persuasive reasons for this understanding. The symbolism of the two lampstands being first and foremost. Where's the most recent place that we see the imagery of a lampstand? Uh, what's closest to Revelation chapter 11? Revelation chapter 2, where, uh, where uh, Jesus is addressing the churches. It's symbolism from those opening chapters of Revelation that was only used to refer to the faithful witnesses of the churches. And how many of those were there? How many faithful churches were there? Two. So maybe that's why uh, it's said that there are two witnesses here in, in uh, Beale's view. But further, later in uh, Revelation chapter 11, we're told that the whole world will witness the death and apparent defeat of these two witnesses. 
But keep in mind that John wouldn't have had any idea that there would be a day coming in which you could record images and watch images of an event from anywhere in the world. And if meaning is found in the author's intent, and it is, then we have to believe that John was referring to the church around the world being persecuted unto death. Now you might say, how does this describe the church throughout this age? After all, we're here, right? Exactly, exactly. The church is killed, they're martyred, but what happens after that? They come back to life. The church returned by the grace of God. And and this is exactly what you see happening throughout history. Christians will be martyred. Maybe for a generation there will be no witness of Christ in a region. But slowly, gradually, the church starts coming back. For, For those who hate the church and persecute the church unto death, this is God's assurance that you will never, ever, ever be able to get rid of the church for good. The Holy Spirit can't be killed, obviously, which is why he, uh, in this view, in Beale's view, is not one of the two witnesses, although I think you might argue that he's one of the two witnesses because anywhere the church uh, is, the Holy Spirit is, uh, anywhere the church is fiercely persecuted, um, if they're martyred, uh, the, the normative means of the Spirit reaching people uh, goes away, at least for a season. Now, sure, the Holy Spirit can uh, do non-normative things, but He has the sovereign right to at least withdraw His ministry temporarily if that's His will. But either way, I believe that the church throughout this age is at least one, if not both, of the two witnesses here in Revelation chapter 11. What's interesting is that the root word for testify in John chapter 15 is the same root word for witnesses in Revelation 11. That root word is the word that we get the word martyr from, which would be the cost of faithfully bearing witness for Christ throughout this age around the world. The comfort that the Western church has operated in over the past 250 years is really an anomaly. It's it's an historic anomaly. It's not normal at all. And let us remember that. Let's keep that in mind as the culture around us continues to become increasingly antagonistic toward churches that remain faithful to God. The significance of this is simply this, that our mission... The, the church's calling and purpose is to do this throughout this age. Starting at Pentecost until the Lord returns, we are to do this, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We must, therefore, continue to faithfully bear witness to the truth of Christ, to His perfect life, to His atoning sacrificial death, to His resurrection from the grave. And we must do this regardless of what it might cost us here on earth. By God's grace and by the power of the Spirit of truth testifying through our faithful witness, the true church will continue to do this throughout this age until the end when the Lord returns. This is the game plan. You and I are the game plan. The church Carrying out this mission, the Great Commission, is the game plan. And there's no backup plan. It will succeed if we're faithful to it. And we will be. The Holy Spirit will ensure that we will be. But notice what we're not called to do. We're not called to make enemies. We're not called to go to war. We're not called to argue. We're certainly not called to treat the truth about Jesus like It's a product that needs to be sold. Our job isn't even to convince our hearers, although we should speak clearly and articulately and and graciously so as to not put any unnecessary stumbling blocks before those whom we desire to see saved. No, our job is simply to testify, to witness before a hostile, dark, God-hating world, confident that while our efforts on their own will never be sufficient... The ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit ensures the success of the church's mission. 
That's not to say that it's going to be easy. Just because victory is guaranteed doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or painless. No, if it was going to be easy, we wouldn't need to constantly rely on the Holy Spirit as our comforter, as our helper who makes us strong when we're weak and fills us with courage to speak rather than being cowards. Is it easy to tell somebody that they are under the wrath of God? No. That's offensive. The gospel is offensive. But they need to know. They need to know that they are under the wrath of God. How will they know that they need to seek refuge from God's wrath if nobody tells them? And how will they know to seek refuge from God's wrath in Christ alone if nobody tells them? The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives continues. Even today, even to this day, it goes past conversion It starts at conversion, and it continues through the believer's life. And during that time, during that journey, we must continue to submit ourselves to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in order for us to grow. We aren't given all the comprehension that a person can possibly have at conversion. We aren't given all the conviction that a person can possibly have at the beginning of our conversion. That would be too much for a new convert to bear. And and having all that uh, comprehension would uh, create a lot of very prideful people. And so we must continue to learn more and more as we subject ourselves to the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. He continues to lead us, even after conversion, He continues to lead us into deeper and deeper truths. Let's be mindful of that in order that we may seek and find the conditions under which the Holy Spirit continues to minister. One is through studying the Word, as we've seen. The the Word is entirely true, but the Word is so complex, I don't think that we can ever understand it from beginning to end with no room for improvement on this side of glory. Even people who have been Christians for 70, 80 years need to continue to subject themselves to this ministry of the Holy Spirit. If we don't read our Bibles, how do we expect the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to teach us? By private revelation? I mean, if if you haven't read your Bible, how do you even know uh, if what was privately revealed to you aligns with what the Scriptures say? No, if you want to know what God says, if you want the Holy Spirit to give you deeper understanding, you have to regularly be in the Word. Another one is the preaching of the Word. And that requires the regular gathering with the local church and and hearing the Word of God being taught. A, A sermon... Listen, a sermon doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be fancy. It certainly doesn't have to be long. What it needs to be above all and everything else is secondary by a long shot. What it needs to be above all is biblical. Is biblical. Because a preaching ministry that isn't biblical, a preaching ministry that isn't faithful to the Scriptures, I don't, it's not a preaching ministry. It's not the ministry of the Word. What is it? Is it a cheerleading session to make you feel good about yourself? Is it a counseling session? What, what is that? It's not the ministry of the Word. No, the ministry of the Word needs to be teaching the Word of God faithfully above all. Friends, we have a mission. We have a mission. And the success of this mission is guaranteed. We just have to be faithful to do what we've been called to do. We must bear witness to the truth of Christ before an unbelieving, hating world. We have been called out by God and assigned to that purpose. It is the highest purpose. It is the highest calling on the face of the earth. Whatever you do vocationally or on the side or anything else, it is second by a long shot again to this high calling of bearing witness to the truth of Christ. We must believe the truth of the gospel, yes, but we also must testify to its truth. We must believe it 
In an intellectual sense, yes, but we also must experience it. We must believe it experientially, experiencing what the Reformers called the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And that means going beyond intellectual knowledge and being intellectually convinced, but to believe it and to have it settled by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But our calling is to go even further than that. It's to go beyond intellectual knowledge. It's to go beyond heart knowledge. Our calling is to tell the world about Jesus. To tell the truth about Him. To testify of Him. Knowing that as we go, friends, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit goes with us. He goes to comfort us, to help us, and He goes to prepare the path before us preparing the ears and hearts of our listeners, guaranteeing our success, guaranteeing that through our ministry of the Word, through sharing the Gospel, God's people, Christ's sheep, will hear His voice and they will follow Him. This is mind-blowing, but it's true. God's mission on earth will be accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit and the church, partnering together, testifying before the world of the truth about Jesus. May God be faithful to grant us constant grace to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the way that it instructs us, for the way that it corrects us, for the way that by the work of the Holy Spirit, it convicts us. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace that has cleansed us. You took our sin, you took our shame. And you imputed it to Christ. You gave it to Christ. And in exchange, you gave us His perfect righteousness. That we would be forgiven and that we would be unblemished as Christ was unblemished by sin in your sight. Thank you for such amazing grace. Lord, we pray that we would know the truth about Christ intellectually. We pray that we would know the truth about Christ experientially, that the Spirit would testify to these things in our hearts as we are sanctified and grown in Christ's likeness. But we pray, O Lord, that you would give us the courage and the comprehension and the conviction to go and to preach, to share the truth about Jesus to witness to the truth about Jesus in order that the Holy Spirit would use even us, broken vessels, to accomplish your purposes. Help us to see, O Lord, what a high and great privilege that is and to live our lives in light of this truth. All for the glory of Jesus, our Savior, and Redeemer, and Lord. Amen.